0: The following is a conversation with one of the great adventurers in Australian history, Dick Smith. Dick is also, consequentially, one of Australia's greatest entrepreneurs, aviators, cultural figures, the 1986 Australian of the Year, and interestingly as well, multiple world aviations record holder. Dick founded and then sold two extremely successful companies that have since been woven into Australia's culture, Dick Smith Electronics and the Australian Geographic magazine. Dick's list of awards and achievements are too lengthy for a terse introduction, but to name two of his seven world aviation records, Dick was the first person to solo circumnavigate the globe by helicopter, this is 1983, and as well the first person to circumnavigate both poles in a helicopter, this is 1989. Dick is also a companion of the Order of Australia. Dick recently published an autobiography titled My Adventurous Life, which was the catalyst for our conversation. I was very, very fortunate to conduct this interview with Dick in his home in Tarragul. And now I'm not a skilled interviewer, but I ask you to bear with me as we progress along this podcast journey in tandem. The reason I say this is because my ambition is to one day be good enough to sit down across from the likes of Salman Rushdie, Colin Hay, Peter Teal, Nassim Taleb, Gordon Ryan, Mike Cannon-Brooks, and McAvoy. The, the list goes on, but to get there, I must be a more competent interviewer. And the reason why I'm saying this is just to emphasize that this podcast with Dick was especially important for me to get right, because I'd been offered the privilege of speaking to him in his own home, and he's one of Australia's best-known personalities. So, in other words, the stakes felt rather high, and as such, I wanted to deliver 100%. This podcast is a reflection of my own curiosities and interests that came from Dick's autobiography. and I hope and trust that they will as well then overlap with yours. This conversation with Dick covers the following and more. The role of risk and serendipity in Dick's life. Dick reflecting on how Australia has changed in his lifetime. How traveling the world has changed Dick's worldview. Dick's strong position on overpopulation. And as well, of course, reflections on the future, a very ingenious take on tax evasion and more as well. So I hope you enjoy this. I really, really did myself. I was a bit nervous getting in touch with Dick and then meeting him and sitting across from him, which is perhaps why I'm here re-emphasizing this uh, point of that. I'm still learning (laughs) and just really, really trying to improve uh, this podcasting, whatever it is. And so, do please, dear listener, hang around to the end of the conversation to hear my afterthoughts, and as well for me to explain my ambition for this podcast. And with that introduction out of the way, with absolutely no further ado, I give you the great Australian Dick Smith. Hello, Dick. Hi, Ryan. Good to be talking to you. Mate, it's uh, a real thrill for me and obviously a pleasure. Thanks so much. Um, Your ambition with Dick Electrical was to make $300 a week by the time you were 27 and then be in a position to employ perhaps two or three people by the time you were in your early 30s. Things clearly turned out a little bit differently. Um, But in combination, you said that missing out on the Vietnam draft was the start of a lucky streak that lasted your whole life. So I just wanted to open by asking you what role the hand of serendipity had in it.
1: I think luck has been, especially for me, to, to be born in Australia in the 1940s. I basically won the Lottery of Life because I've never had to go away to war. We've had uh, relative freedom. We've had incredible growth. And so to me, I've been very, very fortunate. And that's I just put that down to luck. Mm-hmm. could have other, Things could have turned differently. I could have been a little bit... Uh, younger and then headed off to Vietnam mm. and then when when I was starting my business I could be either fighting in Vietnam or being killed in Vietnam so I was pretty fortunate.
0: Were you friends or did you know people that had um, served in Vietnam and lost yeah, their life?
1: Yes I had friends who went off to Vietnam and uh, luckily no, none of my friends were killed but uh, there were 5,000 people either injured or killed in Vietnam so it was a serious war and uh, so to
0: me I was very fortunate. Mm -hmm. That's luck. But what about serendipity? I don't know
1: what serendipity means.
0: So it's a beautiful word that sort of explains the random walk of life and how a completely unintended outcome can sort of stumble into your lap. The way you speak about Ike, you know, this being such a remarkable person who just stumbled into your life is a very serendipitous encounter. Perhaps even the fact, you know, with Pip that she turned out to be such a good life partner kind of by chance, you know, because it's, it's so early in life that you met. Um, These are moments of serendipity more, even perhaps in one of your many trips around the world, you know? Well, I've been very fortunate. I've obviously had a lot of serendipity
1: and uh, I put that down once again to fate or to luck. It could have been completely different. I'm amazed when I look back on my adventures that I'm still alive because uh, recently I reread my book (laughs) and just to sort of, because it was a year and a half ago that I finished writing it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I thought, gee, it's amazing that I'm alive. And so very, very lucky.
0: You took a lot of risks uh, throughout your life and that's definitely highlighted with the helicopter trips. So I'd love to ask you generally about risk, but first about helicopters specifically, How risky is it flying one? For example, could you compare it to maybe the risk of driving a car or flying an aeroplane?
1: Yes, to me, the risk of flying a helicopter, say across a city or home to work or in the outback is very similar to the risk in driving a car. They're relatively similar. But, um, see, a lot of people think a helicopter, if the engine fails, the helicopter must crash. Mm. But, in fact, it can glide very well. It's called autorotation. You wouldn't think so, eh? No, you wouldn't (laughs) think so, and it can glide down land. So a helicopter's about the same risk as driving on Australia's
0: roads, and Mm -hmm. and that's pretty risky, believe it or not. Sure, yeah. yeah. And I suppose the risk, though, is that your exposure to shock is much more significant in a a helicopter because you could get in a car accident and survive, but surviving a helicopter crash is a different story. Less chance, yes.
1: So, uh, yes, to me, uh, but I've often thought, you know, compared to I use a helicopter like most people use a car, (laughs) and I keep a helicopter at home, and if I fly down to my farm, I go down by helicopter. To this day? To this day, right? Amazing. Absolutely. Well, about a week ago, I flew down to the farm. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's a 50-minute flight that would normally take two and a half hours by mm-hmm. road. And uh, occasionally I've driven and have to drive past these huge trucks coming the other way and realising that if the truck driver makes one slight error mm-hmm. and goes two meet- metres to the right, you're dead. Mm-hmm. And so to me, helicopters probably safer in that particular case.
0: So I want to ask you how you think about risk because you clearly understand maybe there's a calculation, what are my odds flying this giant machine around versus driving, um, versus, say, crossing a large body of water, et cetera. Do you have a framework for risk that you think about? Oh,
1: definitely. Look, I I call myself a good risk manager, and the fact that I'm still alive shows that I've got away with it successfully. But uh, there's a lot of luck involved as well. Flying a helicopter across the Atlantic Ocean is a, it, it's a, an experience that's quite frightening. I felt sick inside most of the way, thinking, am I going to get away with it? Yeah. And in fact, when I landed in uh, Iceland after crossing from Greenland, mm. I was so scared, I thought, I'll put the helicopter on a ship and ship it home and come up with some excuse mm. so I don't have to complete this flight. But the amazing thing of the human psyche, I went into the little cafe at the airport and I had a cup of coffee mm. Then I thought, oh, gee, maybe I should just head on to England and get that far. (laughs) And, in fact, the flight right around the world, remember it's a single-engined helicopter, Mm -hmm. and if the engine had failed across the Atlantic or across the North Pacific, it's unlikely I would get out alive. I did have a little life raft, and I was wearing a survival suit. Mm -hmm. But a helicopter, it auto-rotates okay to the ocean, but then it rolls over within about 15 seconds. And uh, you've got to climb out, get to the surface get your life raft out and then try and get it to inflate Mm -hmm. and then climb into the life raft. The chance of doing that is relatively small.
0: In the freezing
1: Atlantic. (laughs) In the Atlantic, it was icebergs floating around, so the water was at freezing point.
0: So you genuinely felt this sickness almost. Is it just because as you're flying for... How how many hours was it over the body of water?
1: About altogether from America to England was about fifty flying hours. But I'd say over water there would have been about nine or ten hours. Wow. Of absolutely out over the ocean where there's nowhere to go and and, and you'll die if you don't keep
0: going. And so you pro- you probably suffered nine to ten hours of crazy stress. Yeah, f- feeling from... sick
1: inside that I shouldn't be here mm-hmm. because what I'd done, I'd thought. I flew my helicopter around Australia and really loved it and mm-hmm. thought and I and what I'd forgotten is I only fly in good weather because if the weather's bad I don't bother to go flying. Mm-hmm. But in trying to cross the Atlantic Ocean, you can't go always in good weather. And I got into what they call a low pressure system where there was snow and ice and just the most terrible seas that were below me. I knew that if I'd come down the ocean was so rough that I wouldn't live.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so and I'd also made a mistake, I, my plan was to wait and take my time to get across the Atlantic and fly across in a high pressure system, which is good weather, but I'd arranged to be met by Prince Charles at Balmoral Castle, mm. and, and a certain date was worked out, and in the end I was obsessed with getting there on the date, because it was <laughs> I considered such a big deal to land at Balmoral Castle, that I then ended up in a low-pressure system, in the terrible weather that goes with mm-hmm. it. So that was a mistake, having that pressure. Yeah. Most of the other other days of my flight, I was prepared to wait for good weather.
0: Mm. And on that uh, rendezvous with Prince Charles, I believe you were a minute early, right? Yes, I was about <laughs> a
1: minute early, and uh, it was, to me, quite exciting. I knew he was a helicopter pilot, right. so I'd got the Australian Prime Minister had written to Prince Charles and said, oh, look, we've got this crazy Australian Dick Smith who's attempting to... Be the first person to go solo around yeah. the world in a helicopter. Can he land and meet you in the in, somewhere in the UK? Mm. And Prince Charles came back and said, "Oh, I love helicopters. Yes, tell him I'll be at my at Balmoral Castle
0: in uh, August. So tell him to pop in." So that sickness you're feeling over the water is like a natural mechanism correcting your risk, saying, Dick, this actually wasn't a smart move. Right now you're riding on luck. This isn't like calculation. It's a protective
1: device. Yeah, that feeling inside, it's the brain saying you shouldn't be here and and try and stop this whenever Mm. you can.
0: I'm trying, the reason I ask you that directly is I'm trying to set up a larger question about how you think about Australia and risk-taking in Australia. Where we're sitting right now is in Terrigal, which I believe is also where you grew up. Mm -hmm. Right behind us is Kurangai National Park. And you would sort of just wander out there for hours at a time. I think you would even sleep out there some nights when the mum and dad wouldn't call you home. That is, again, a type of luck. But also, if you could reflect on that, like... That dynamic between risk to actual shock and potential death, but certainly injury.
1: There's risk involved in everything. And uh, you're right, I used to come home from school and my only rule was, in those days, that was the 1950s, uh, change out of your school uniform and be home by dark. And I would disappear into the bush and I had a couple of planks I'd put together to make a raft and I would go rafting across the shark-infested Middle Harbour. And (laughs) one day, I remember, I jumped from one rock to another rock over about a a a one-and-a-half-metre gap, and I I slipped and hit my head and ended up with a terrible black eye and nearly knocked myself out. Now, I managed to get home myself. I managed to get down to a road But instead of having enough sense to ask a car, there were some cars stopped there, Mm. look, would you take me to the hospital? I just kept walking on and I managed to get across Roswell Bridge and took me an hour and a half to get home. And Mm. my mother says, what happened to you? And I said, oh, I fell. And she put me in bed and I was okay. But in those days, you're allowed to take risks that today parents would be considered irresponsible if they let their children do the, the same thing. And that's a pity because my life and my business career came because I was a risk taker mm. and I learned through the Boy Scouts movement what I call responsible risk taking to reduce the risk wherever you can.
0: Mm-hmm. In the Scouts as well, something that stood out to me speaking about them was this notion that the World War II veterans who would sort of lead you and guide you amongst yourselves, the, the boys, the ones who, the leaders who took the greatest risk sort of had the highest status amongst you guys. You yeah, know, they well, were the, that, the
1: coolest. That, yeah, they'd come back from the Second World War. And and so they'd take, our, we, we, our scouts, we'd all get in the back of the Master's truck and we'd drive to the Blue Mountains, which is sort of 60K away. Mm. And today, I mean, you you wouldn't allow anyone to sit in the back of a truck. It's too dangerous. You've got to have <laughs> seatbelts on. Yeah. But we'd be in the back of the truck and we'd all be yelling and shouting and he'd take us off. And the scoutmasters and scout leaders in those days allowed us to take risk. And I realised that they'd all come back from the Second World War where they'd been taking enormous risks in their lives. Mm -hmm. And so it was normal for them to allow young people to take risks. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important today, we've got lots of rules that try and protect people from themselves. But you really should be allowed to take risk because that's, to me, a nation must wilt and wither away
0: uh, without the spirit of adventure <laughs> and, and without the spirit of risk-taking. Sure. And what's an example of one of these laws today that would inhibit risk-taking? Oh, well,
1: I'll give you an example. Uh, off the east coast of Australia is an island called Lord Howe Island. And just to the south of it is the world's tallest sea spire. It's called Ball's Pyramid. It's unbelievable. It's 600 metres high, about 1,800 feet, straight out of the ocean. And it's got no landing place. There are just cliffs. And to to climb it, which I've done, uh, you have to go out by boat and then jump into the ocean and then swim, grab hold of a ledge and swing yourself up and start climbing. Now, I managed to attempt to climb it when I was 22 years of age. Mm. And then 10 years later, I went back and I got to the top. But shortly after I got to the top of Ball's Pyramid, the authorities came out and banned climbing on the pyramid. Now it's illegal. And the prime reason, they talk about environment, but the prime reason is it's risky Mm. and they don't want to have to rescue somebody, so they've solved the problem by saying it's illegal. Mm. Um, Another example, up in the Blue Mountains to the west of Sydney, we have a very famous rock feature called the Three Sisters. It's three spires of rock. And on the west face of the Three Sisters is one of the best rock climbs in the world, as far as I'm concerned. It's not the most difficult, but it's absolutely vertical, mm-hmm. magnificent scenery, really good handholds and nice chimney and an overhang to get over. Well, I've climbed it a number of times, but about 10 years ago, the authorities came in and they banned climbing on the Three Sisters. Mm-hmm. And so all of these good, responsible, risk-taking places you could go to are banned one by one by the the, the bureaucrats, quite quite sad.
0: How much of, of that is to do with the environmental decay of those areas well, versus that's the claim. people hurting themselves? Yeah, that's
1: the claim. But no, it's mainly just controlling someone else's life. Okay. The, the bureaucrats got themselves into a position mm-hmm. and uh, they're probably quite a small person in their position, but they can be very powerful. They can stop other people from doing things. And that's what it seems to be the human psyche with some people. They want to be able to stop and control and that's right. what they've done.
0: So you're taking enormous risks uh, back in the day with the Scouts. Did you ever have a moment where someone took a risk and the downside occurred? So maybe death, but even just severe injury? No, no,
1: no, death. When I was in the Scouts, I wanted to go to to a famous place called Kandersteg, which is in the Bernese Oberland in Switzerland. Mm. It's where the Scouts have a chalet and they have a climbing course there. So I went on the climbing course in 1966. And in the same course... Uh, one of our scouts uh, from Italy, he fell and died. The incredible thing was that today you'd end up, someone would have to be held responsible, there'd be a Royal Commission, that would ban the climbing in future because it's too risky. Mm. But in those days, none of that happened. It People was just, just accepted this is it part of climbing. They just accepted that if you're going to go snow and ice climbing in the Swiss Alps, that there's a risk <laughs> and someone could get killed and that's what happened on mm. my particular course. And it didn't... Stop me from advising people to go on the courses because in general, uh, the risk was probably less than driving around Europe in mm, a car, mm. but uh, it, was, it, it extended the boundaries of people by being able to take responsible risks. Mm.
0: Uh, I wanted to mention this anecdote, you said driving on the back of a truck. I remember when I was 19 in, in Thailand, um, I was with a group of people and we were chopping down banana trees to feed some elephants. And there was about a hundred kilometer journey between the banana plantation and where we were. And I remember one time there wasn't enough seats in the truck anymore. So they had two benches that they fixed on the back of the ute where uh, six people would sit and then four passenger seats in the truck. And anyway, there was one too many. And I just said, yeah, uh, don't worry about it. I'll sit in the back. So I sat at the edge of the three with half my body out holding onto the side Yes. Flying down these Thai roads. Yep. Um, well, and that's the type I, of risks you take. And at the time, I just thought, oh, this is magnificent. The wind's in my hair. Yep. And then I got back, and especially now thinking about it, yep. what an impossibly stupid risk that yep. was. Because all he had to do was, all, the only thing that needed to happen was something to come on the road and him braking, and I'm off the back of yep. that truck. Yep. Well, there um, you are. Yeah, I mean, and obviously there's reasons why those might think those types of things might be, you know, illegal. Or if yeah. you saw someone driving like that in the road, you would be like, hey, what the hell are you guys doing? Um, how differently you think Australians now look at risk to when well, you were a boy?
1: I think there, at the moment. There's incredible control over trying to reduce risk in every way because people are held accountable or responsible. If you're a scoutmaster and mm. someone got injured or died, you'd be in a most terrible position. Legally? Legally, absolutely. It's, and that ruins it? It ruins it, yeah. The solicitors are out there and the lawyers and they're all going to make sure they get the maximum return. And so the world has changed. It'll never. It's not for the better and it will never go back, I don't think. Um, When I was in the Scouts and we decided we'd attempt to climb Ball's Pyramid, I simply told the Scoutmaster that a group of us had got together and we were going to sail out and climb the Ball's Pyramid. Now, I never thought of asking approval. Mm. Today, if a Scout decided to do it, there's simply no way he or she would get approval to do that because it would be deemed too risky. Mm. And so that wonderful adventure that I went on that gave me this spirit of risk-taking, that would have been stopped.
0: The way you describe in the book, is it sounds like an extremely exhilarating climb to do, let alone walk. I mean, it's almost like you're jumping off a boat onto a rock yeah. coming up to the top. And I believe you slept on it too. It was a multi-day. Yes, it's basically it's vertical.
1: And uh, the ledge that we slept on was about um, half a meter wide. We actually roped ourselves on with our sleeping bags mm-hmm. and lying there. <laughs> And so, yes, it was the most fantastic place I've ever been to and I occasionally I fly out to Lord Howe Island, I fly around Ball's Pyramid. Just have a look, yeah. to reminisce. Now, the amazing thing is that even though it's illegal to climb, in the last four or five years, there's been uh, two or three successful attempts to climb it and climbers, young people, sail out from Sydney, mm. secretly land on the pyramid and climb it to the top and then take a photograph as they're standing nice. on the top. Yeah. And then they climb down again and send me the photograph afterwards <laughs> and so it's good to see the spirit of adventure right. is still there
0: yeah um, do you think people these days understand the risks that they take maybe compared with your own generation well,
1: not so much but also risk reduction is staggering i mean the road toll has come down dramatically because of stronger cars airbags better technology uh, better technology that's right i mean Airline flying is sort of uncannily safe. It's Mm -hmm. just it's nearly as safe as sitting at your (laughs) armchair in front of your TV set. So it's incredibly safe. So, yeah, things have changed without any doubt. Mm -hmm. When I was young, none of the cars had seatbelts. Now, it's hard to believe that. And I was looking back at my diary. I actually fitted, I've always been a risk manager, and I fitted seatbelts to my old Holden before it was required, before it was compulsory. Because I realized, gee, if this car rolls over, I'm going to roll out and be squashed. And so I sort of always had this measure of risk reduction in my psyche. Mm -hmm.
0: There's this fella Nassim Taleb. See if you recognize him. No, okay. So he writes about risk um, from... And he is someone that greatly influenced me. My other podcast is actually just talking about his books Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the ideas that are from them, which is maybe why I'm laboring on the point of risk a little bit too much. But he surmises in one of the books, this idea of embracing risk, of, of having sensory approach to risk and understanding it through the metaphor of crossing the road. This is also the role of luck and serendipity in your life. If you line up with 10 other people randomly chosen from Australia and cross the road together, there might be a few with a blindfold on who make it to the other side, no problem. Yeah. One guy might just run across the road. You know, This is the person who got lucky in everything they ever did and they look back at the end of their life and say, come on, it's easy. Look how easy it was for me. Or there's the guy who has the blindfold off to the world and is looking at the cars going past and trying to figure out the best way, but still gets taken out by the car because he got unlucky, no matter how much you try to embrace the risk. Well, no, that's
1: absolutely right. I mean, I've done five flights around the world and three of them have been in single-engined aircraft. Mm. Now, I'm relying on the reliability of that engine because in many cases, if the engine had failed, I would be dead. But uh, what I did, I managed that risk by, I I I thought, what's the safest engine in the world? And so I made sure the aircraft I was flying had the safest engine. And statistically, you can look that up. So you can manage the risk. And uh, I say one of the reasons I'm alive today is the incredible reliability of North American technology. Mm-hmm. It's evolved to be just so incredibly safe,
0: <laughs> to the point where you can just completely put your lives and absolutely your look, family's look, all lives. All in of my stands.
1: aviation heroes are people like Kingsford Smith, um, Charles Alm, uh, all of them. Bert Hinkler, they lost their lives. They kept flying in they single-engine aircraft and ended up losing their lives. Mm. Now, I realised myself, I've done five flights around the world and I was going to do a sixth, <laughs> but my wife and daughters said, no, you're not, and they yeah. stopped me because they said, look, you've been lucky to get away with what you yeah, got away exactly. with. And I sort of had to agree with them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can't predict your future of infinite possibilities based off a finite experience of the past. Yeah. Just because you just because it worked last time doesn't necessarily mean it'll work again. Um, I haven't lived in Australia for about five years, and I wonder if this happened to you as well. As you went abroad and lived elsewhere and saw how other people live, you started trying to understand your own culture and country a lot more, um, which is a something that I've gone through and you know am going through, trying to understand what informs my parents, my mates, this country, our culture, like trying to understand a little bit better. And a big part of that is making a comparison between the generations. So you were a teenager in the sixties and you, you know, came into wealth in the seventies, right? An enormously prosperous, enormously prosperous time for Australia I would just love to hear about how you reflect on Australia now. And I've got a few specific topics. Yeah.
1: Well, well, Australia now, I mean, we're very fortunate people, without any doubt. And I now look and talk to my grandchildren who are just becoming teenagers. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at the contrast between me me, that my life and as <laughs> I grew up in their life. Yeah. And in some ways, things are far better. I mean, when it comes to communication, when it comes to health, that's all better. But the chance, say, to start your own business would be a lot harder today because we have Amazon and these huge conglomerates which can sell things so cheaply that to start a small business may be possible, say, a coffee shop. Mm -hmm. But uh, to start an electronics components distribution business would be Mm -hmm. very difficult because the competition is so staggering. Mm -hmm. So there are things that are better and things that are worse. I think the most incredible thing with Australia... Just happened recently. We've just had an election, mm-hmm. and the election was quite close. But our prime minister, who was there and who lost the election, within hours, instead of uh, waiting too long, he announced he he basically announced that he was standing down and handing the election to the opposition to the Labor Party. Mm-hmm. And I sat there. At, it was about ten o'clock at night on the election day, and I thought, what an incredible country we can have a change in in government from one party to the opposition party, done in complete peace and friendliness, Mm -hmm. contrast to the United States. (laughs) And I I had to sort of hand it to all of our people in our country that we can change government using a democratic system to the opposition without any war, without people claiming anything, just it all went well. And that's the wonderful thing about our democracy. Also... I've I've been able to say anything. I've never th- been threatened that I would go to jail no. or be locked up because I speak freely. And once I was walking down the street with my solicitor and I said to him, what's the largest defamation payment that's ever been paid out? And in those days, it was about $400,000. And I said, wow, I can afford that. That means I can say anything.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I've always known, that I would never say something that offended someone or hurt people. I'm not into that, but I know I have the freedom because I'm wealthy. I have the freedom to say anything. And so I use that freedom wherever I can.
0: But how does that inform Australia as a culture? Because those values that you just mentioned are present in many different places in the world, but they have, we have a distinctly different identity and culture. Yeah. Yes. One of the things
1: is we, we, we have a very big country and a small population. We, um, we 're different in many ways, and i 've been to <laughs> i 've been to something like of the three hundred countries in the world i 've been to about two hundred of them that's crazy and I never ever say australia's the best country because most people say that about their own country yeah, yeah. but I just say this is a very good country now one of the the differences here is this spirit of mateship which I think is quite wonderful that you help yeah. a mate yeah. and that 's part of Australia but the frustrating thing about Australia is that We love regulations. Now, most people (laughs) will think Australia's this country of the free spirit and Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, people want laissez-faire, no controls and so forth. But because of our convict background, our English convict background, where there were rules for everything, Australians today love rules. And at one stage, I was chairman of the Civil Aviation Safety Authority and I tried to get rid of some of the rules which we have, which cost add to cost but not to safety. Mm. But the biggest problem I had was with typical Australian pilots, they wanted the rules. And it's sort of ingrained in us that we were the first people with mandatory crash helmets if you ride a bike. Okay. We were, I think, one of the first people with mandatory seatbelts. We, we love rules and we're the first with them and we seem to accept it.
0: How do these pilots justify keeping something on the books that doesn't add any value but costs something? That's one of their arguments.
1: Vince, they know that we're one of the safest places in the world to fly. That's mm, so, because of these things. And they say that's because right. of these re- regulations, whereas many of the regulations actually have no effect. I did quote one in my book. Uh, in my day, when I first got into helicopters, you had to actually fly your helicopter to the runway at an airport and then take off from the fixed ring runway. And that was very frustrating. You'd have to hover along and might have to go a mile or one and a half kilometres in taxiing to get to the runway. When I headed off overseas and picked up the helicopter from the Bell factory to fly around the world, I very quickly learnt that in America and other countries, if you're in a helicopter, you basically take off from where you are on the airport Mm. and head off and then you come back to where you want to land. Now, that to me was surprising, but when I came back to Australia and tried to change the rules here, it was very difficult Mm -hmm. because I got got told we're the safest in the world. And in fact, I found out the reason helicopters had to fly and use the runway at an airport was because we had no rules for helicopters. They were using the fixed-wing plane rules for helicopters. Now, I managed to change that, and now... Uh, If you go to an airport in a helicopter, you can fly directly to where you want to land (laughs) and it's safer and it saves
0: fuel. Yeah, Which is great. I mean, it sounds like that's a great case of survivorship bias. These rules exist and it is like X. Therefore, it is because of the rules rather than the critical thinking to say... You're absolutely spot on. How could we change something? So um, I'm surprised to hear you say that we're so rule-abiding and it could just be the fact that I live in one of the most rule-abiding countries in the world, which is Sweden. Yes. And it's me making a comparison there. But for example, if we're driving on a country road and I can tell there's no one around and I burn a stop sign, my girlfriend's livid. Whereas for me, it's like, but honey, we can see the road. There's no one around. It's absolutely no problem. Uh, And there's also this other anecdote that someone once told me. Uh, We were in Paris on the, the river, beautiful summer night there's probably a thousand people lining the banks everyone's boozing everyone's eating having a good time and he made the point at the end of the night um we left very little rubbish was left there it was it was treated with respect and someone made the point to me an Australian that if this was in sydney a meet, you know it would only after a little bit of time someone would have turned their music up too loud people would have been pissing in the river um people would have left their rubbish everywhere yeah. it would have gotten very rowdy and rambunctious which Sort of runs in contrast to, to this rule abiding society yeah, you're talking yeah. about.
1: Well, you're exactly right. So, when it comes to breaking rules, we're pretty good at that. <laughs> but when it comes to supporting governments in writing rules, we support governments yeah. that write rules. There's no doubt about that. Mm. And as I mentioned to you, you can't climb on Ball's Pyramid, you can't climb on the Three Sisters. These are all rules that have been bought in because we allow that. Yeah. And just north of Sydney is a beautiful area called Pittwater. And it has a beautiful little island called Line Island. And as a kid, I used to go there, most wonderful place. Mm-hmm. Well, not so long ago, I went to go to Line Island to land on the little beach, and there's a huge, great big notice, prohibited. Mm-hmm. And uh, they found some penguins there. So instead of just having uh, an area for the penguins and putting a little walk so you can walk to the clifftop on Line Island, no, they've banned it. Now, of course, the person who did the banning is a scientist They're allowed to go there to check the penguins. (laughs) So it's basically controlling. And and
0: to me, all these signs are everywhere about things you can and cannot do. Mm -hmm. Uh, Business environment. You mentioned that your grandkids are entering an economy uh, where there is access to international labor because all products are so distributed. Manufacturing happens in another country. Your website might be hosted in another country and built by someone in India it makes the competition for across many industries so liquidated down to this very fine pricing point where everything becomes mechanized and automated this is a problem that i'm facing and everyone from my generation quite frankly is facing it's becoming much harder to stand out because the competition is bigger than just the sydney labor market now it's the world labor market yes
1: what i did with building up dick smith electronics from $610 $610 investment, small company, I mean it ended up, uh, I sold it to Woolworths and they were doing $1.4 billion turnover. Now that was because there was basically no competition in that field, selling electronic components to electronic enthusiasts. Mm. There were small single shops, but no one had put it together and run it as a chain with a big catalogue and all the rest of it. But today, to try and build up a company like that would be incredibly difficult because We have Amazon and uh, we have all of these large companies that sell internationally, as you've just explained. Mm. And so it would be very difficult to compete. Mm. I'm sure there are niche markets that new entrepreneurs will be able to find their way into, Mm. but I'm positive it's not as easy. When I was getting my business going and starting to make a lot of money, I used to say to my wife, Pip, look, this is all going to change. We're going to get a competitor and we'll only make half as much money. But I was fortunate in those days, we never got that competitor when I was running and owned the business. And so that allowed me to do really well. Mm. After that, we had businesses called Jay Car, and other businesses came along and started to compete in that field. But that was after I'd sold out. So I was lucky. Yeah.
0: And... Um, um and it's certainly the case that there are new industries for entrepreneurs that service whatever the new businesses and economy might be. But it's just still the same uh, case again of this international competition. And it's yep. the point where the early movers can sweep up a huge majority of a market simply because of the scalability of internet solutions and yep. software solutions. And so, in a world that maybe you and my parents grew up in, where there is physical manufacturing that has to be physically close to the end consumption, yep. you know, it could allow for way more, uh, similar jobs yeah. to exist within multiple places. But for example, if I want to go online and find the best, uh, you know, software solution for my business, there's probably two or three companies in the world to choose from rather than my local guy Absolutely. and everyone else's local guy. Yep. So that's obviously a big one. Um, what about the social environment of Australia? How can you compare it to when you're a boy? And we've probably already, uh, inadvertently yeah. touching it because of the risk, but i just love to hear. Well, you'd
1: have to explain to me. I'm not an intellectual. I'm a car radio installer. <laughs> so when you explain that question to me. Mateship. Mates. Yeah.
0: People's word. Value yeah, look, of...
1: But I, I'm wondering, we have this mateship uh, message, which is be kind to people, be friend, but that's pretty international. And uh, as well as five flights around the world, I drove around the world with my wife, mm-hmm. including right across Europe and Russia and Kazakhstan, Mongolia, And the thing we found, and I found all the way around the world, if you have a smile on your face, just how wonderful people are. And when I was in Sweden, as we we drove from the UK, uh, Norway, and then through Sweden, I was taken out by some Swedish friends. And when they heard we were going to drive into Russia, they were very worried for us. And they said, (laughs) you'll be robbed. They were very, very worried. When did you do it? Uh, About five years ago. And so anyway, when we got into Russia, we took two hours to get through the border from Finland and Mm. off we drove. And we were then in in total probably five or six weeks before we got to Vladivostok as we crossed Russia and Kazakhstan. And everywhere we were treated in just a wonderful way. I had a little notice written out in Russian which said, we are Australians driving around the world. Can we park here tonight? We were in a camper van. And the gr- the gruff face, because you'd knock on the door of a house and a gruff face would come out, well, what's this? And then, then they'd read the little notice and they'd go into a big smile. <laughs> and from that point on, we were offered, uh, come in and have a, some vodka, have yeah. a sauna with us. They were given, they'd knock on the door at night and offer a little a glass bowl of berries. And we were treated the whole way just like you would anywhere in the world. And mm. it sort of taught me, having driven around the world where you're right there meeting people, that uh, people are the same everywhere. There's Mm. no real difference. Mm. Of course, unfortunately, leadership is different in different countries. Oh, yeah?
0: Do you want to say something about that? Oh Well,
1: I mean, you only have to look at what's happening in Russia at the moment, and what really staggers me is there's no doubt that Putin is invading another country, a democratic country, but I'm told that most Russians support Putin. Mm. Now, that, to me... Is worrying because I'd hate to see Europe go into the bloodbath that we had in the 1940s. Mm. That would be in the 1940s. Yeah. Mm.
0: Terrible. What about, uh, again, comparing your Australian youth to Australia now, intangible things like attitudes towards happiness, um, identity, yeah. relationships? I'm not uh, sure if that's
1: changed that much. See, we, we came out of the plains of Africa all modern men and women came from the plains of Africa where we evolved over tens of thousands of years. And so we're pretty similar wherever you go. There's not a great difference. We might have different skin colours. Mm-hmm. But, but... And one of the problems we've got at the moment is, for example, climate change. And the problem we've got in trying to solve that is we're not very good... Humans are not very good in fixing long-term problems. We, we evolved to respond to immediate threats. A lion is about to eat us. And so we're good at that, Mm -hmm. uh, surviving immediate threats, but not so good at surviving a threat that's going to happen in generations to come. Mm. And that's going to be our downfall if we're not careful.
0: Okay, but how does that answer specifically comparing Australia in the 60s to Australia now? Are you saying that because we all evolve from the same place, it's essentially a universal truth? I don't
1: think think humans have evolved in 40 or 50 years. We're the same. Mm -hmm. Now, there is a difference, of course, that young people have a handheld phone and it's like a computer that we could have never, ever dreamt of, Mm -hmm. that you can travel around the world so inexpensively Mm -hmm. uh, compared to my time, but otherwise humankind is basically the same we have not evolved in any concrete way in 60 years and so we're still fundamentally the same people but we are if we're not careful we're going to ruin the world that we need to have a really good environment we're going to ruin that if we're not careful
0: before uh dick smith electronics in 1966 you traveled internationally on the dime of a climbing buddy it sounded like Uh, among the list of countries Thailand, Singapore, Japan, India, Syria Lebanon, Jerusalem and you wrote uh, when you got back that I visited 43 countries and boy did my outlook on life change I met met lovely people from dozens of different faiths. Surely this brings doubt on the notion that any one individual faith could truly be the only one
1: yeah, well, I, uh, it's interesting because I was brought up. My parents were Christian, and I went to uh, Sunday school mm. to learn the Anglican Christian religion. But even when I was quite young, I was a, a bit um, sceptical about it. And appears I said to my mum, "Mum, the scripture teacher says there are hundreds. Uh, scripture teacher says there's God on everyone's shoulder." And I said, "But I said there's hundreds of people in the world, so that's impossible." <laughs> I didn't realise there were billions. Yeah, yeah. And she said. She looked at me and said, "Well, you just have to have faith mm-hmm. and that 's the difficulty i 've had because as i 've traveled the world, and anyone who does travel the world will see some incredible religion quite fantastic and uh, but virtually every believer of their particular religion is convinced that they are the right ones. Mm-hmm. Now, I do understand there are some people who say all religions are correct, but but Oh, some, some people do. Okay. Don't the Baha'is? I think the Baha'is yeah. accept all different religions. But um, my friends who are religious are quite convinced that their religion is correct. It's the right one. and It's the right one. My difficulty then is, gee, if that's the case, how do you know which is the right one? Mm-hmm. And normally your religion depends on where you were born. So if I was born in Saudi Arabia, it's most likely I would be a Muslim. Mm-hmm. If I was born in Italy, most likely I'd be a Roman Catholic. Mm-hmm. Now... That doesn't seem to be the truth, the fluke of where you're born. Does that mean you're <laughs> a, a little bit that?
0: coincidental? Yeah, it is a bit coincidental. Yeah.
1: So look, I admire many religions because they all have this spirit of, of being kind, mm. and uh, that's important doing unto others as you'd like people to do to yourself. So they are the good things. It does concern me when I see the Christian religion forty years ago in Ireland were murdering each other. And of course, in more recent times, in the Muslim religion, where you've got the different faiths murdering each other, that doesn't it doesn't it doesn't look good to me.
0: No, it's uh, it is the universal, persistent stain on those uh, faiths because it's so man-made. Yeah. You can how can you explain the female hand in Sharia law? You know, this yeah. is this has come from an ancient man and um, Richard Dawkins. Answer that that exact same question you know like if i was born in this african tribe i'd believe in this pagan god that you've never even heard of it can't be coincidence and imagine the cruelty of a god say a catholic god to allow a young girl to be born in current-day afghanistan and to be brought up under the taliban when you as the omnipotent god allow that so no. Well,
1: it's, a, it's an interesting one. No one's going to solve that
0: problem. Not on this
1: podcast. <laughs> yeah, not yet. No, no. Yes. Certainly not on this podcast. Oh, yeah.
0: But um, in addition to uh, the re- realization about religion you had in that trip, something that stood out to me that I really projected onto and romanticized was, wow, traveling in the 60s to places like uh, uh, yeah, Lebanon, Syria, India. And, and let me tell you something about them. When
1: I went to Lebanon and to Syria, they were the most safest, friendliest, yeah. most wonderful places. And in the case of Lebanon, I was there in 1966 as a tourist. Absolutely wonderful. Two years later, it suddenly went into civil war and I'm sitting back in Australia thinking... That's impossible. Yeah. And then with Syria, I went into Syria and just Damascus was a most wonderful place. And then to see what's happened to Syria now. So it shows you almost how fragile the human condition is, that people who seem to get on with each other, yeah. there was some festering anger there. They suddenly all start murdering each other. Quite yeah. unbelievable. And so I was very lucky. I went into the Soviet Union in 1966. I was actually there for May Day, the great big May Day procession. And that was in the last days of communism believing it was the correct system. And, of course, it broke down. I remember coming through the Berlin Wall from the wrong side. I'd come from Russia going into West Germany. This is on this trip? On this 1966 trip. So I'd come from the Soviet Union into East Germany and then came through the wall from the communist side to the western side. And if someone had told me then, look, in 10 years' time, this whole wall is going to be pulled down, I wouldn't have believed it.
0: Tell me about what that was like.
1: Well, it was incredible because... In the Soviet Union, we had guides who were in the... They were buses that had come from, I think, Belgium, Mm -hmm. the actual bus itself with the driver, but we had Russian guides, and they were utterly convinced that their system was the best system in the world. But as we travelled, we realised that the people were incredibly poor, Mm -hmm. and and the contrast, especially going from East Germany to West Germany, was just so staggering. I thought, how could people ever believe their system is working? Mm -hmm. Now, of course... Russia no longer has the communist system. (laughs) They have capitalism Mm -hmm. and the standard of living, as I knew when we drove around and across Russia and I drive around the world, they have shopping centres now that are as modern as any shopping centre in the West. But invariably, out there in the country, there are still lots of poor people. Mm
0: -hmm. This feeds into your uh, issue with overpopulation. And so feel free to address it now, but maybe later. But I feel like there's this romanticized ideal about traveling back then versus now, say, um, irrespective of the war. But if I went to India, it might be commercialized for tourists rather than this pure, authentic experience that you might have gotten yeah. to have had back then. And- yeah, I
1: think, I think I was very lucky to have traveled then. But that's when I learned there are too many people in the world. And uh, in those days, I think there would have been, we now have 7.2 billion, there would have been less than 5 billion. Mm-hmm. Now our population goes up by 80 million a year and that's just, it's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. The mainly that extra increases in sub-Saharan Africa where they're incredibly poor. And what gets me is we have the United Nations, uh, their meetings on climate change, but they don't talk about the elephant in the room and that is the enormous population growth. And there's simply no way... We can even have 8 billion people with a reasonable standard of living. That's not possible. Mm. So we need to be getting our population down, and I don't see that happening.
0: What is your suggested policy on curtailing population? Oh,
1: definitely. Well, I'm not into control. I don't like that word at all. But I'm into the fact that every child brought onto this earth is a wanted child. Mm. and. To make that happen, you have to raise the standard of living, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, and you have to educate young people, especially women, mm-hmm. and and make contraception available so they can make their own decisions. And once you do that, the population growth rate stops. It stops growing. We have to stop it growing, and then we have to reverse it and I would only do it... There are many countries that are doing that at the moment. Uh, The economists talk about Japan being a basket case. Its population is going to go from about 120 million now Mm -hmm. down to 90 million by 2050 or 2060. And that's because they're having less kids and they don't have huge immigration. Mm -hmm. When it comes to Australia, we're an arid country. We have 25 million people. At our growth rate just before the uh, pandemic... We would end up at a hundred million at twenty one hundred when my grandkids right will still away. be alive, yeah, and not many people believe that a hundred million is a sensible number for an arid country like Australia. Mm. It could be possible, but we 'd have everyone living like termites in high rise, and the wonderful freedom of the thing that we valued when I was young is having saving up to have a house with a block of land we called it a quarter acre block. And a front and a backyard, and the kids could build a cubby house and play cricket and all of those mm. things. That even in Australia is going. Young couples are being forced into the, into high rise with their families, mm. and that's not good.
0: Yeah, mate, it's like it's impossible for well, impossible is too much, but it's extremely difficult for me in my generation. I'm 27 yep. uh, to buy a property in this city. Yep. You know, although I did grow up. Well, that's up where in
1: we've it. gone backwards because what you would think is that each generation would be better off than the previous generation. That's what we're looking at. But when it comes to housing affordability, which is incredibly important, we've actually gone backwards. And uh, that's no good. That has to be fixed. And one of the ways is to stop the enormous population growth. Uh, As I mentioned, I'm not into population control. But I just think educate people, especially young people, make contraceptives available and the population will sort itself out very quickly.
0: But say, for example, um, in Australia, we don't have necessarily a plus two growth rate, I, I don't think. I printed out a bunch of population pyramids here because I wanted to ask you about some uh, several different countries. But the... Uh, access to contraception you're talking about is a problem of the developing world right here in australia there you know there is an an inability to access condoms or the pill as far as i'm concerned so isn't it inevitable that growth is just going to continue and if you if you uh, what do you call it when you bottom out Flatline. When you flatline or even start to uh, decrease the cost of things, that's actually the sign of a plummeting economy and (laughs) a lowering of the standard. Yeah, well,
1: economists say that, that you've got to have eternal growth in in the use of resources, energy and resources and population. But that's impossible. It's a finite world. Mm. So one day you've got to stop growing. One of the problems with our system of capitalism that I've benefited so much is that it does require perpetual growth in the use of energy and resources. So it's impossible. It's a system we have to change. And that's going to be really hard because the powerful who have done so well out of it, and are wealthy and powerful, they don't want to change it. Mm. And they want to hand the billions to their kids and the kids want even more billions. But it's inevitable that one day we have to live in balance. When it comes to Australia, we don't have population growth from our birth rate being too high. Uh, Most Australians have less than two kids per Mm. family. And so when we're, we're basically... And the replacement, replacement rate is two per family. Yeah, yeah. so we're, we're, our population will level out if it's from just the birth rate. Where we have the growth, and we're at 1.3% at one stage, we were one of the highest growth rates in the world, is from enormous immigration because our long-term immigration was about 70,000 per year. Mm-hmm. But at the time of John Howard as Prime Minister about 15 years ago, he increased it to about a quarter of a million a year, about 250,000 a year. And that was the immigration rate up until the pandemic. Now, that would have taken us to this 100 million population by the end of the century, which is not sensible. Mm -hmm. But the reason politicians like high levels of immigration is that it satisfies the wealthy and it looks as if we've got growth when it's fourth growth per head. Mm. You're actually getting worse off when it comes to buying a house. But one day the world has to live in balance. We should be planning for that now.
0: Is the current cap still 250000 a year?
1: It's going back to that. I'm sure the politicians will very quickly ramp up the immigration because it hides lots of faults. We should be getting our standard of living rising Mm. by more productivity improvements, not by having more people and using more resources. (laughs) (laughs) But it's so much easier. If you're a capitalist, if you have more customers, it's pretty easy to get growth. Mm. And if you're running one of the big public companies in Australia, there's constant pressure for growth, the shareholders, the institutions. So where's the growth? Where's the growth? And in fact, it's the reason that my company, Dick Smith Electronics, which I proudly started from nothing and grew up to when I sold it about 50 shops and a couple of thousand staff, the reason it failed in the end is Woolworths, there was room for about 100 Dick Smith shops in Australia. We sold to specialist electronic enthusiasts. But Woolworths, a big public company that had bought Dick Smith Electronics, it was told it had to have constant growth. So instead of opening 100 shops, it opened 350 shops. Mm. And in the end, they couldn't get more growth. And that was the reason that they started selling TV sets and low-margin items that there's no way you could run a business and the whole thing went broke. Mm. But to me, that just shows the false nature of our present system that requires eternal growth. It's impossible.
0: But isn't aren't they separate um, driving forces, the... The incentive to grow your company, especially if it's public, because everyone involved in that is incentivized to extract more. So, therefore, in that system, in public markets, in capitalism, it, it makes sense that you want that uh, eternal growth. But isn't that separate to how a nation evolves or no, how no, individuals it's always, live? It's the
1: whole world, the whole world is driven. We've had one hundred and fifty years of the most incredible growth based on cheap fossil fuels, mm. and but the whole thing is not sustainable. So it's going to collapse one day because you just can't keep growing. It's impossible. And capitalism does go into recession if it doesn't have growth. That's the fault with it. So one day someone, some genius is going to come up with a new system that doesn't require A new political growth. system. Well, an economic system. Yeah. It's the economic system. The political systems of parliamentary democracies are wonderful. They mm. work well in Australia. It's a wonderful democracy that I live in where I can basically say anything mm-hmm. and I'm not going to be locked up. Mm. And uh, that's very important that a lot of countries don't have. Mm. But the growth problem is, is, has to be somehow solved. And I don't even have the knowledge of how to do that But I do know our present system requires enormous waste. People will tell you how bad it is that the iPhone only lasts so many years and you need a new one. No, it has to be that because that's to keep the growth, to keep the economy going. (laughs) And that's what we've got to change, and that's going to be really hard to change. I think there's going to be, unfortunately, some type of major economic collapse, Mm. and from that we'll then realise you can't keep going this way and we have to change the system
0: this uh, fella who uh called peter Zihan, who is he really beats the demographic drum uh probably most prominently he is where i pulled all these from yeah uh, which you can look at if you want but it's just what i'm showing dick is just uh, several different countries population pyramids and there's one in there that stands out and that's the one of nigeria which is a perfect pyramid yeah. the rest of them are sort of i don't know what would you call them like beach balls or yes, something yes, yes and um Thank you. The purpose of me sort of showing that is that isn't this a signal that naturally the world is constraining its growth? Yes. Because the people are coming now from the developing world, whereas in generations past, the people were coming from the developed world. Yeah,
1: yeah. So what it shows is that once you raise the standard of living and the education level, that population growth goes down. Where we've failed is we have a billion people who are incredibly poor Mm. and that's what we should be concentrating on raising that education level and because then the population growth will go down you don't need to have one child policies or anything like that Mm. education and the population will come down women are sensible they'll only have enough kids they can give a good life to Mm -hmm. and so it's been proven all around the world raise the level of education and the population growth will come down and we'll be able to live in balance if we don't do that we're in for some horrific times. The United Nations, I think it says we're going to round off at about 10 billion, but it's normally always underrated the number of people. It's normally underestimated, and so I don't really trust the United Nations (laughs) and their figures.
0: It sounds like then you might not necessarily be a technology optimist, a technological optimist, because... uh, my having, you know, significantly less life experience and also business experience and exposure to how the real world works, perhaps. My, my optimistic take on looking at this population issue and um, problem of over-resources and so forth is one that technology can solve it. And so you gave the example of an iPhone running out after a couple of years. But if we look at a phone, it has removed, say, 15 to 20 items that used to sit on Dick Smith electronic shelves. Yeah. And that's 15, 20 different sets of labor transport resource allocation that is now combined into this tiny little object. Many, many businesses that operate now completely through one computer, yeah. no, require significantly less stuff. Absolutely right.
1: But what I was referring to was the inbuilt waste because, and it has to be, to keep capitalism going, you need the most incredible waste. Mm. Now, most environmentalists will talk about removing waste. You know, we shouldn't have this incredible waste, the great landfill and all the rest of it. But the, if we remove the waste, capitalism will collapse. It needs the waste. And that's the problem with it because it's a finite world mm. and you can't never get never-ending more resources. It's impossible. Now, it hasn't hit us yet, but it will, and climate change is an example of what we're causing to the world because we have just so many people using so much energy. Yeah. And there Are is you a, a, do you believe in climate change?
0: Absolutely. Don't I mean, worry,
1: I talk to people who don't.
0: Well, <laughs> uh, in, it's not really a question of believe or not, right? It's more a question of how much do you think man is involved yeah. in the climate changing, yeah. um, which I think it's quite clear. We have a, a traditional carbon cycle that exists for billions of years and then we dug into the earth and extracted extremely carbon-dense. Yeah, common sense. Let me tell you
1: another thing. When I flew around the world in my little helicopter in 1982-83, I'd never heard of climate change. But I came back to Australia and I said, this is what I said, I said, I can't believe the damage we're doing to the earth, that it's not affecting it. Mm -hmm. Because I flew for day after day in smog. I flew at low level, saw the damage, hardly any natural forest left. Mm. And so even back then, that's just over 40 years ago, I'm thinking, gee, we must be damaging the world. And then, of course, people start saying, well, we are. Mm. And so to me, having seen the world from a low level, I've been, been around the world five times now, <laughs> <at> low level <laughs> yeah. in planes, that I've realised, and I'm a strong supporter in the fact that one day you have to live in balance. And the quicker we learn to do that, the better off mm. future generations will be.
0: And the reason perhaps why I framed that difficult question before that I just like uh, didn't put together very well was because there is a technically optimistic view that climate change could be solved by, as we were speaking about off air, say mass adoption of nuclear, my hobby horse, potential geothermal, uh, ubiquitous geothermal, um, or even there... You know, something that is funny about this, you talk about common sense and like actually just understanding from first principles how a thing is working. And obviously you can say so much about nuclear and why it's purely a marketing reason why nuclear isn't further, more widely adopted. But I was reading about this technology, which essentially is in a coal mine, not a coal mine, a coal generation, sorry, a coal power plant, which would uh, actually extract the majority of the carbon emission in a fancy exhaust and actually offset very little carbon, yeah. but because it's got this dirty image as a co- uh, as a coal <laughs> fire plant, people, the politicians could never run on a policy that they're going to, you know, reinstate the fire pan or either. But basically, um, there is, according to this one guy, Carlos Arake, who's a CEO of one of the most promising geothermal companies, he measures it that currently twenty terawatts is the global energy right, yeah. requirement. Twenty terawatts, yeah. yeah. And by twenty fifty, they're saying it's going to be as much as. Uh, 40 terawatts yeah. and the reason it will double so much so quickly is because where all the new population is coming from you know sub saharan africa and asia their standard of living is rising they're going to consume a lot more energy basically at 20 terawatts barely a fraction of it is covered by renewables and in as much as 30 years time we might need double the energy usage yeah. so basically every signal is pointing towards a world where we have to use more fossil fuels but that runs completely in contrary to the fact that we have facing this existential crisis Absolutely. of climate change yep. and it's just the most wicked problem what can be done about it right. and he's saying that
1: geothermal well it hasn't yet been shown to be effective but if it is there's obviously a lot of energy there there's 5000 times more energy we need coming from the sun every day onto this earth the problem is it's intermittent and what we haven't solved is the storage problem. Mm. And, so, and that might be unsolvable. The reason I support nuclear, as so I believe is an interim measure anyway, that, that's the backup we need. Otherwise, we're going to have... Uh, I, I love solar, but it's too intermittent.
0: And what about, should you mention nuclear since it's uh, on the topic, or is that a topic for another day? No, no, no,
1: no, I, I support nuclear. When I was on this trip around the world in 1966 as a 22-year-old, I managed to have a tour of the Dungeness nuclear power station in the United Kingdom, and was tumming away, it had just been built, finished a year before, and it ran generating power for 40 years, it's recently been closed, and uh, cleaning it up, and... Uh, It was just a non-issue. And I thought, oh, well, these are going to be all around the world. Of course, because of the accidents we had, we stopped using nuclear. Whereas imagine if with airline flying, when we had an accident back with the comets in the 1950s, we'd stop flying. That would be ridiculous. But that's what we did with nuclear. We stopped working on the designs because so many people were opposed.
0: How optimistic are you that, say, Australia could reopen a couple of nuclear plants and even build a few more in the next few years? Yeah,
1: I'm, I'm positive it will be forced to. I think it's going to be probably too late. Mm. We'll be put a lot more carbon into the atmosphere. But my belief is that we'll be forced to go with nuclear. And, uh, but that's not going to happen for at least a decade or so. We'll fiddle around trying to run the country on intermittent renewables and then someone's going to decide that the battery storage is just so expensive that it's not it's not viable and someone will make the decision to go to nuclear. It's interesting. We were going to go with piston-engined submarines, back a 100-year-old designs. We were going to convert nuclear submarines from France into piston ones fortunately just recently the government decided that's ridiculous and we're going to go to nuclear submarines mm-hmm. one day the government will say look whether we like it or not we're forced to go with nuclear mm-hmm. and the fact that countries like france are 70% nuclear powered have been for 40 years and don't there's no warnings for australians not to travel to france it's considered a safe place so that if we got the french to build our nuclear power stations not the old soviet union i think that'd be pretty safe
0: yeah you also mentioned that uh, one of the big oppositions to nuclear was because many people from your generation and therefore the people in power right now live through an era where the byproduct of nuclear power was the fuel for giant weapons. Yeah. Is that still a reasonable problem to think about
1: well it 's one of the problems, but if you, that said we 're not going to use nuclear we 're going to let the world warm up mm. that 's a worse problem yeah and so to <laughs> me you 're always balancing risk everything has risk. Mm. And uh, one of the greatest risks people talk about with intermittent uh, renewables that we're going to have lots of these dams, pump storage. But first of all, that means inundating magnificent valleys up and down the east coast of Australia where we have our mountains mm. with great big new dams. But also one of the most dangerous forms of, of power generation is hydroelectricity because dams collapse. And so people are going to be living under these huge dams they're mm. constructing, knowing that if there's an earthquake, the dam could collapse and 20,000 people will die. Mm. Now, I'm not that keen on that. I'd rather follow the French and have a nuclear power station
0: away. Yeah. As you have uh, gotten more into sort of politics and trying to, uh, I don't know, what would you say, lobby political yeah. changes one way or another, what have you learned about how backwards, a lot of incentives work and how much hypocrisy there is in in politics. I'm thinking about water (laughs) usage and cotton fields and stuff like that. Yeah, that's
1: right. Well, that's always the problem. But that's the problem of our system of capitalism that I benefited so much from, Mm. that when it comes to cotton, you have these wealthy companies and wealthy owners who want to make more money out of cotton. So they have tremendous political sway. Mm. And uh, I have a bit of an opposite view. I can't believe how good it is compared to how bad it could be. Okay. And, um, and so this country, it has some problems, but generally speaking, it's pretty fantastic. And if you had lived my lifespan, I'm 78 years of age, I've lived in this most wonderful time in this country of Australia, mm. and I'm more concerned for my grandchildren. I don't think it's going to be quite as easy.
0: Yeah. Finally, I don't want to, again, believe with the topic too much. Uh, I don't want to also take advantage of the generosity of the time you've given me. But could you project towards the future and just say how optimistic you are about, the, say, the working uh, opportunities for your grandkids and no, I, the, I, I the I have environment difficulty, they'll live in, the yeah. ability to travel, no, I safety? Di- I have
1: difficulty in talking of the future in a positive way because I'm I'm patron of the Australian sceptics. And I believe you can't look into the future; it's impossible to do that. We are incredibly ingenious creatures, the human, humankind, without any doubt. And so, I'm hoping that there are going to be some new inventions out of left field. Yeah. But I do think we're going to be in for some very tough times in future, and uh, I, I, I can't see them being solved easily. Mm.
0: This fella Peter Zihan that I mentioned before, yeah. uh, who's beating the demographic drum very loudly, is sort of speaking about the end of globalization and yeah. how the order that has been sort of secured by the American uh, Navy yeah. since the end of uh, World War Two, yeah. which has allowed the safety and the freedom of commerce and specialization of countries and so forth. If that collapses, you know, then we will see the price of everything go up, and very few countries can actually support themselves when it just comes to the basics. Well, it all could
1: happen. I mean, we've been remarkably these little creatures that came out of the plains of Africa Mm -hmm. to run this incredibly complex world and to do it so incredibly well. Mm. I mean, a couple of years ago, before the Ukrainian war and before the other wars in Afghanistan, I suppose, was going, but you could buy an air ticket and go to just about every country in the world Mm. And a young backpackers did. Mm. What a fantastic place. And it wasn't that expensive. Mm. You could travel around the world and you were treated in a friendly way. Mm. Now, we've lost that at the moment. You certainly can't go to Ukraine. Certainly not. And, no. and I wouldn't advise people go to Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. But when I was young, young Australians were driving from the United Kingdom to Singapore and driving across Afghanistan. Wow. Yeah. So it just shows you how the world changes. One day, hopefully, Afghanistan will be friendly again. As I mentioned, I went to Syria and Lebanon, Mm -hmm. lovely, quiet, calm places, beautiful for tourists. You can't go there now. So the world changes. Hopefully, it'll go back to the better.
0: Yeah, I remember meeting a woman who was in her 50s when I met her, and she said when she was in her 20s, so this would have been the 70s or 80s, she walked uh, the tip of of Africa to the to the bottom of Africa wow. and we would just, just knock, on knock on people's doors and yes. ask if she could tent in their backyard. And she did that down the entire country, across yeah. all those different con- yeah. countries. And everyone was saying how crazy she would be. Single woman yeah. did this. No, I believe it's it. unbelievable. So I would love to borrow some of your marketing genius. Uh, if you were a 24-year-old today with a business, how would you get attention?
1: Well, what I'd do, first of all, if I was a 24-year-old, 24 year old and i i had a business i was planning to get a business going i'd buy the cheapest air ticket around the world and go and look at what's happening now you can do a certain amount with google but i'd go and see what's happening then what i would do when it comes to marketing is the media is always desperate for good stories Mm -hmm. and those who read my book will see how i exploited i towed an iceberg into (laughs) Sydney harbour i jumped a double-decker bus over 15 or 16 motorbikes I generated that publicity for nothing. Mm. And, so, and there's potential for a young businessman or woman to do that today, to come up with gimmicks, towing the iceberg into Sydney. Harvard. That could be
0: done today too, yeah. It could
1: be done today. But the legislation. <laughs> probably, no, but it's amazing. You can come up with ideas. Yeah. And if a young Dick Smith started in Australia today, the media is hungry for mm. anyone who's got a bit of a personality is a bit different, mm-hmm. and they'll give you good publicity. So exploit the media for nothing. Mm. In my early days, I had no money for advertising, so I got it free, and you can still do that today. You're so,
0: totally right. Why are there not more, I suppose, famous Australian entrepreneurs? I, uh, I can only think of Mike Cannon Brooks.
1: Absolutely. Now yeah. I don't know why. Anyway, yeah, quite sad. True.
0: True. Okay. okay. Um, we've only got a bit more time, so I want to. I've got four for you, but they're not long ones. So, you wrote about taxes. Uh, just as a th- I, whether I can't remember whether it was a chapter or, or a paragraph, but you said something that was so good, which is that we celebrate so much those who get rich, you know, the Forbes rich list, 30 under 30, all these things are very famous and popular and well understood. And people are romanticized, the the private jets and so forth. But what if we published a list of the top taxpayers, because it would clearly generate this terrific status value. And you said even that in Japan, they do this and it's viciously fought to get on that list. And I thought that is such a brilliant idea because obviously if you're an australian and you want people to maybe you're a minor and you've got all this bad will but hey Guys, look how much money I pay to the government. People are like, you know what? This guy's all right. Why don't we do something like Well, Well,
1: it's my, it's my idea. I've always been proud about the tax I've paid yeah. and uh, very proud and that I've paid and tell my friends, gee, I've just had to pay so much tax because I feel good I'm putting something back into the country. So that's an idea. It's interesting. No politician has taken it up and given me Surely. any support for that.
0: Because, uh, ah, right, because they're not paying themselves. <laughs> Maybe, who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Could, Could this be a private, private business? business? Like Forbes is a private business. It could be, right? Yeah, it could be, yes. Interesting. I wonder, that could be a good idea. Um, Now, finally, uh, Dick, sorry for speeding to the end of this interview like this, but uh, this might seem a bit out of context, but um, I cannot help but think about this. But the fact that I'm, you know, sort of, speaking to a great Australian who is uh, several generations older than me, there is, you know, I I just want to ask you this question, which is an observation that a guy called Norm Macdonald made at the end of his book. Uh, He was a Canadian and a comedian and he largely took the piss out of celebrity memoirs in this book. But then the last chapter was, uh, was, you know, nice and serious. And he basically wrote, um, the only thing an old man can tell a young man is that it goes fast real fast and then if you're not careful it's too late of course the young man will never understand this truth so i wanted to just see whether that resonates with you yeah
1: it doesn't because i look back on my life and i was able to do all the things i set out to do and and get better results than i ever thought would happen and when i was writing my book a really good writer, Peter Fitzsimon, said, Dick, you've got to put all the bad things in that have happened in your life. And I look back and other than having stock stolen from me, which is the start of the book, mm. uh, I've had virtually no bad things. And so I've been incredibly fortunate. Mm. So to me, uh, that's, it's something that I can't change. And it's not as if I look back in my life and think, oh, gee, I wished I'd trained, changed direction at this particular time. I suppose the main failure I can say that I did isn't something that affected me personally. I was the chairman of the Civil Aviation Safety Authority and I wanted to bring in lower-cost aviation rules so we'd get more people flying. Mm. And I failed at that. And it never affected me because I can afford the high costs, but it did affect the rest of the aviation community. And I'm disappointed with that. But if I had my time again... I don't think there was any way of fixing it because aviation is treated so emotively.
0: Mm. It's very difficult to make change. But, but what about the idea of life going really fast?
1: Yes. Isn't that funny? No, I haven't, that, that, I haven't found it's gone that fast. No. And uh, I, having written my book of my story took 70,000 words or something to tell my story, and I left lots of detail out. Mm. But no, I'm 78, and uh, I've been just so fortunate winning this lottery of life and being born in Australia. And I found I've had about the right time in each sections of my life sort of thing. So can't agree with him.
0: Amazing, Dick. I I can't thank you enough for doing that. So these final two, I try to ask every guest, what is a country that you're particularly bullish on looking forward?
1: A country that I'm bullish on looking forward. Um, a country that I'm bullish on looking forward. Um, Antarctica. <laughs> okay. Because it's a beautiful place. It has the minimum uh, environmental impact by human beings. Right. And it's not a country. It's a world. Uh, hopefully one day it'll be a world national park. Wow, so yeah. Antarctica is... My place, the place that I love more than anything else.
0: And you flew there on a chopper.
1: (laughs) Yes, and it doesn't have too many humans. Yes. (laughs) So Antarctica.
0: And finally, if you could witness a conversation between any two people of history, dead or alive, no language barrier, so a podcast like this. Well, I'd like to to talk to Sir Hubert
1: Wilkins, who was a famous Australian adventurer. Not many people know much about him, but he was this extraordinary adventurer, the first person to fly in Antarctica. And... A scientist as well. And so I'd like to meet him. I'd love to meet Sir Douglas Mawson, who is once, once again one of our great explorers, a geologist. Mm. Um, who else? Uh, Gandhi. I'd like to meet Gandhi. <laughs> He'd be great. <laughs> what
0: and would I'd you say, say to him?
1: I'd say um, thanks for the wonderful leadership that you've shown. That's what I'd say. And the fact that he was into peace in a practical way, not into confrontation. Mm. What in a the face system.
0: of so much violence as yeah. well.
1: Yeah, and then today I'd love to meet Mr. Putin and say, what are you doing? Mm. Why are you causing this terrible war and
0: fatalities?
1: And surely you, can't, you, you must see that it, in the long term it's going to
0: be worse for the world. No, I don't think you get a human answer out of him, though. You're probably right. It's <laughs> just completely calculated. <laughs> so yeah. sad. Yeah. Um, all right, well, mate, is there anything no, no, else? Nothing else. Thank you. Amazing. Hope it all worked. Absolutely. So dick thanks again mate real pleasure speaking with him it was, you know he's I think 87 years old sorry if I'm getting that wrong dick but I think he's 87 years old and uh, he was just working away you know he's working all the time um, he still flies his helicopter back and forth between his properties you know there's so much life in him and and I um I I, I am really inspired by dick you know he sort of he created two kind of in Australia, at least, industry defining companies. You know, Dick Smith Electronics, unfortunately, is no longer around, especially in the capacity that it used to be. But it was really the first consumer retail electronics store, sort of done at scale, um, franchised. It was amazing. And then Australian Geographic as well I mean the idea of a nature magazine is an original to to them but to do it in Australia is the important thing and he was such a good marketer for his time his ability to create attention um so yeah huge in huge admiration of Dick so this was um yeah like I said at the beginning the stakes were high they felt high at least because I really wanted to make sure that this was done well and it was a good job but anyway what is my ambition for this podcast my dear 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 listener It is to corner the podcast market for eclectic curiosities in no matter what country it is that you're listening in from. What does that mean? Well, since there is no genre for eclectic curiosities, the goal cannot simply be to rank number one under that genre. Instead, it needs to be a more generalized realization. And that just comes through the form of nice shiny reviews, nice things said in the comments section and just energy in the general direction of the Curious World podcast in the various algorithms. So I leave that with you to do what you will. But please, if you're confused as to what to do, leave a nice review, say something nice, connect with me on one of the various uh, platforms that we can connect via these days. And thank you for listening this far through. And thank you again, Dick. Stay tuned, dear listener. The podcast rolls on. Ciao.